do you think about uh, you know uh, Messi right in 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 the World Cup? It's not like anyone's doing anything different than he's doing, right? He's passing the ball, he's running, he's changing yeah. direction, he's shooting. Every every football soccer player in the world does the exact same thing. So what makes him so much more elite is that he's so much better because he's practiced the little things over and over and over again. And he's obsessed over them. Yeah. And in business, that's the same thing you need to do. And we are live and kicking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the CVO Live. It's my pleasure and honor to be here with one of my uh, earliest heroes in the optimization space, Brian Eisenberg. He's a speaker, author, influencer. He's a fantastic human being besides uh, all this because I had the pleasure of drinking some beers with him in Milano. So, Brian, thanks a lot for joining me today. It is really, truly a pleasure. You've been doing a, a great job with these, with these, uh, you know, live zooms and, and sharing great information and and advocating for companies to pay attention to their customers. Yeah, that's that's the that's the plan. So, Brian, the first question that I have for you is uh, regarding how how you've uh, basically tell us the story of uh, how you've transitioned, how you how you've got because not everyone. Uh, in our audience, have uh, re read your uh, your previous books. Uh, you, you've transitioned from the persuasive copywriting to uh, improving the conversion rate. You've been one of the pioneers in the conversion rate optimization space, and now with your uh, with your latest book, you are focusing more on the customers and how to improve the overall companies. Yeah, you know. <laughs> When the internet first started, and, and, and mind you, you know, we first started optimizing for conversion as early as 1995, right? When we thought the world would be crazy thinking about conversion rates, because after all, like you can drive new traffic, but what good does it do if you can't close the sale and you can't make money? And we all know what happened in that story, right? You know, a few years later, the dot bomb, you know, everybody was investing money into the, the, the you know, the new economy. And the sock puppets and stuff like that. Yeah. And we were still saying, hey, you've, you know, the emperor has no clothes, right? <laughs> because you're not focusing in on closing your visitors. You're not understanding how they need to buy. And the internet was going to change the way people bought. Because unlike when, here, like when we talked about waiting for your cat to bark, right? And that's a 2005 book. Okay. Yeah. We talked about, for example, how car buying was changing, right? Well, one of the examples, right? Where I went in to buy a car and I almost killed the salesperson, right? <laughs> no exaggeration, because <laughs> he was trying to sell me and tell me things that weren't, but I had done all my research already online, right? And at that point, it wasn't as common as it is today, where everybody does their research online. Everybody can even purchase a car online today, right? They weren't doing that back then. And so, you know, we were trying to educate people on the early shiny new object, right? How to deal with this internet thing, how to how it was going to influence how customers buy, how they think, how they research. 
And what we've realized, especially over, uh, I guess it's the last five years, right? Where, you know, in always be testing and in call to action, we were listing 40, 50 different things that you needed to do and understand and test and in order to, to satisfy your customers. And what we realized is that companies really needed to hear the message that this is simpler than that. You've got to tell the story better, right? Because all marketing, all business is storytelling, right? The characters are your customers. Are you setting them in a scene that entices them, that they, that they think is remarkable, right? That they'll want to share that scene with others. Will, will you end their story as them as a hero in their buying journey, right? And that became what we wrote as, as buyer legends, right? And then we wrote the Be Like Amazon because we're looking back and we're saying, well, what was Jeff Bezos doing? Because when we first started on the internet, we didn't know if Amazon was going to be successful, right? It, it, he had just started. I mean, I remember the first time Jeffrey and I put our dad in front of Amazon and he tried to buy and he got so frustrated and just, he walked <laughs> away, walked away from the computer. And it's like, Today, we have a simpler message for businesses, much simpler, okay? And it still has to do with conversion and it still has to do with value optimization. Is that in sports, in magic, in uh, restaurants, right? And being a chef um, and in business, what matters the most, unfortunately, is the most boring things, <laughs> okay? <laughs> It's the fundamentals. It's the simple stuff. It's it's what um, we call the first principles, right? If you think about uh, you know uh, Messi, right, in 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 the World Cup, it's not like anyone's doing anything different than he's doing, right? He's passing the ball, he's running, he's changing yeah. direction, he's shooting. Every every football soccer player in the world does the exact same thing. So what makes him so much more elite is that he's so much better because he's practiced the little things over and over and over again. He's obsessed over them. Yeah. And in business, that's the same thing you need to do. And so our latest book, you know, The Rice and Beans Millionaire, uh, Tale of an Improbable Entrepreneur, Jeffrey and I set out so that we can educate, you know, middle schoolers, but even like experienced entrepreneurs to understand, hey, these fundamentals, and no one sat down to say, hey, what are the fundamentals of, of a good business? Right. We, we have some ideas, but we don't really obsess over them. And so we wanted to create a book that people can obsess over. And of course, it starts with the customer. Fantastic. Long answer. <laughs> Lots, of, <laughs> Lots of years to sum up, because if you think about it, right, our first book, and I'm going to tell you a crazy story from last night. Yeah. First book we ever wrote, Persuasive Online Copywriting, OK, How to Take Your Words to the Bank. Self-published this book, long story behind it. But last night, I found a blog post from um, uh, uh, 2020, 2020, I think it was. I've never seen it before, but it was on the Grammarly um, blog. Yeah. Okay. And they listed their top five copywriting books. And somehow they, they included ours. But here's the cool part. Here I am, you know, I've got my gray hairs. I've got three kids. That's the first thing my kids were really impressed with <laughs> that I was on the Grammarly blog. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah. Okay. 20 plus, you know, years later. Yeah. So Brian, I, I, I have to unpack something which is uh, which is important in uh, in what you've said. You've said that you've started from doing these small tweaks, adapt, uh, adjusting this, adjusting the other, 40, 50 things. And now bit by bit, as your gray, as your hair got grayer, as you've learned more about it, you've said that now the focus should be on the fundamentals, which in a nutshell would be on the customer. What do you mean by uh, focusing on the customer. Tell us, share with us a few fundamentals that you think are are worrying. It's it's an obsession over the customers. It's an obsession that you're solving their problems, that you're you're helping them buy as opposed to trying to sell to them, right? And that's a, that's a quote we talk about in, in in be like Amazon that Jeff Bezos says, right? Yeah. You've got to understand that everything you do in business has to be about creating customers who want to tell other customers about how amazing their experience with you were, right? Because the most valuable marketing that you could ever do, and we all know it, we all do it every single day, is word of mouth, right? It's because you've had a remarkable experience, or if you remember Seinfeld and the soup Nazi, you had a terrible experience, okay? And you want to share it. But it was still remarkable, right? Think about that word. People remark about it. They really want to share that story. And when those stories get shared, you create a legendary brand, right? A story that gets told from one person to the next person to the next person. You think about the Ritz-Carlton hotels. They're infamous for their stories, right? And and, and how customer obsessed they are. And they do a few things that are so incredibly valuable that I think every customer and every business can really take away from this one. Number one, they empower every employee to take care of the customer up to a certain amount. They they have the discretion. They're never going to question them. Hey, you spent $600 to fix this problem for somebody. Fine. No, no questions asked. Okay. Because they've empowered their employee because they hire employees who are just as passionate and believe what they believe and have the same you know, that, that same gut feeling of how important the customer is, that, that it works properly for them. And then, well, one, one last point, then with these remarkable stories that they do of, hey, this kid left his stuffed animal, in, in, you know, in the hotel and they, they went around, they put it in all different places and they took pictures and said, don't worry, you know, he had a great time on his extra vacation and then sent it back. They then tell that story internally right? So that all their employees understand the examples, the legends, that gets ingrained, it reinforces it like a flywheel, and then the customers hear about it. And then the customer shares that story. That's value. Indeed. Uh, Brian, what what I want to address now is is this under-promise, over-delivery principle that if you listen to KPMG, for instance, they have all these things regarding, you know, you need to be on the bullseye because you need to deliver in order to deliver over the expectations. A, you need to know the expectations and B, you need to freaking do this. And without employees that are trained towards doing it, you're not going to do it. But their model is more mathematical. Uh, what you're suggesting is something that it's, you know what? Over deliver to the customer and it's going to, to, to come back because the flywheel is going to be activated by your existing customers, which have remarkable stories to share 
with the, the, the future customers that you would never have without these stories, right? Correct. And, you know, look, in, in all marketing, you know, as you know, my first book, my, my first two books, right, were the Marketer's Common Sense Guide to E-Metrics, Data, yeah. and Persuasive Online Copywriting. We wrote them almost, almost in parallel. Yeah. So how can I go from the creative side of copywriting to the data side of e-metrics, right? Yeah. And it's because there's an art and science to this. There's no, there's no precision. And this is why it's so important to constantly be testing, right? Because you don't know exactly what that pinpoint is. It's not a mathematical formula because people are irrational, right? So you need to understand how you can deliver the value that you, that you expect people to, to, to get obsess over delivering it, delivering it great, and then find little surprising ways to, to make them feel special. Yeah. What's value? Because we are talking about customer value optimization. What value is, how can you understand what value is for your customer? You know, it's, it's a great question. And again, it's one, of those, it's one of those very funny things because marketers use that term all the time. There's, there's two kinds of value, right? There, there's perceived value and actual value, right? So an actual value is, okay, you know, you can get this book. It's on Amazon. It's $7.95. But if you and I go out for dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, it, it, we're trying to make it accessible to everybody, right? Yeah. You and I go out to dinner. And we, we enjoy an, an incredible meal, right? And, and I'm, I'm, we're, I'm in talks about coming back to Romania maybe October. So we'll, we'll have to make this happen. Yeah. But we have an exceptional meal. You know, we, we're laughing, we're cheering. And then at the end of the night, I, I, I take out one of these copies and I write you a note in there, okay? And I sign it for you. And, and, and something specific just for you. Does, is the book still $7.95? <laughs> oh my god no right and so that's the, that's the key that marketers need to understand what's the difference between the customer's perceived value and your actual value that's where magic happens because if we can find ways to increase the perception of the actual value now we're providing more than the customer expected Excellent. So now the question for you, Brian, is we all know that. I mean, it's it, it's fundamental. In the We all have a gut feeling that, hey, we need to over-deliver to our customers. We need to understand what's value for them. However, if you look at the behavior of the, I don't know, almost all the companies out there which are now struggling because the customer acquisition cost is going up, they, they can't keep their customers coming back. If we look at the behavior of the companies, it's not like they are respecting this principle. Like in the, in the real life, we know that we need to go on green and stop on red, but it, it, it's like all the companies are freaking going on red wait, wait. And not to, to, to break. You said it so brilliantly, okay? Because we, we use this analogy also when teaching baseball, okay? And I'll, I'll share it with you. In baseball, and, and this is life, right? This is about decision-making. And there's two ways you can make a decision. So I live here in Texas. I mean, it literally just got off a friend who's, who's visiting here uh, this weekend. And I told him when he gets to the airport, he needs to take the 130 toll road, okay? Because the speed limit is 85, but no one drives 85. He was up to 110 last night. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Especially after his bags got lost, the FAA closed flights. He had a terrible day. 110 felt amazing. Okay. So he's driving. And now 500 feet in front of him, right? Uh, you know, a, 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 half a, a half a kilometer or a quarter kilometer away, he sees the light. And now he's looking at the light and he's got to say, okay, what, what am I going to do if it turns red? So he has a choice. He can either hit the gas and just fly right through it, okay, while it's still green and hope that it doesn't turn red. He can drive as fast as he's going now and then when it turns red, yeah. right, and and, and shot, stop everything all at once, right, and that, that you, you feel that in your shoulders, or he can lay off the gas and go into cruise control, and then as he gets closer to the light, now he knows whether he's got more control to go on or off. Yeah, very simple, and that's a model that we can use. And so you think about a brand like Amazon, right? How did they over deliver? When we think of brand Amazon, right, we think of, okay, they're going to have great prices, right? They don't, now it used to always be lowest price. It doesn't have to be, it has to be a competitive price. And so they have, you know, all kinds of machine learning that they can adjust the prices compared to their competitors multiple times a day. You're always going to see a competitive price. The second one is they're going to have more selection than everyone else. And their buyers work on that. Yeah. That's part of their brand promise. The third one is, they are going to make sure you get it fast because he's obsessed over getting to you faster than ever. And so I remember when two-day delivery was exceptional. Now two-day is not enough. Sometimes I can order something here in Austin and I can have it delivered within a half an hour. No, no exaggeration. It's crazy. Yeah. And then the last one, and this is the part where I think a lot of people struggle, right? Because those are their fundamentals, is they value customer experience and they're judged by that and measured by that. But what does that mean? It means, look, 99% of the time when, when you order from them, nothing is going to go wrong and shouldn't go wrong. But that 1% where something goes wrong, they're going to find a way to go above and beyond to make you feel special and correct it. That is Cruising along and knowing, hey, I can make a decision either way. And I think, you know, depending on on your business and and your model, you really need to understand where that cruise control is, right? And where do you keep your foot on the brake? And when do you know, hey, this customer is in trouble. I need to accelerate and do something special for them. Yeah. If we look at uh, what the, how the world looks like, I think... It, we need to go back to the basics and to the fundamentals, like you've said. But uh, also, we have to be aware of that because what I'm seeing in retail and in e-commerce, we have a plethora of data sources, uh, and I don't know, a, a lot of tools. We have a lot of data. It's like uh, we have all these metrics, dashboards, the time to X, Y, Z. And in this, there are a myriad of uh, KPIs However, if we look at the basics, I'm a personal fan of measuring customer satisfaction, NPS, whatever, and then segmenting the NPS because I don't believe in averages and I think we're both on, on the same This because yep. we had uh, a chat about it. But the, the question is how companies will adapt. What must change at the leadership level so that companies will adapt 
the right metrics because chaotic reporting leads to random acts of marketing and they they are wondering why it's not working. A lot of businesses rely on, on uh, what we call bubblegum marketing, right? Um, you know, you take a piece of, of bubblegum, you put it in your mouth, you start chewing it, it tastes delicious at first, and then all of a sudden it just loses its flavor. So then you go and, you know, you throw it out, then you decide, do I want another piece or do I not want another piece? And this is the way they do marketing. Oh, this is looking like it's doing something great. Eh, no, no, no flavor. Okay. And they're never consistent. And so the people who interact with their brand are always wondering who they are and how they are. And it's only when you look at the metrics through the lens of your customers, right? What we call customer-centric metrics, which is the way I was just describing Amazon. They look at it through, what does the customer care? Not the vanity metrics, not the metrics that, that give them an internal focus of their business. And not that we shouldn't measure those, right? That's why the accountants are there. That's, that's why the operations guys are there. But the CEO and the marketing people, they need to be in touch with customer reality, okay? Yeah. And let the people who are in charge of keeping the business running focus in on that. And I think that that is a key part of, um, of the next step in analytics is where if they stop their focus in on just worrying, oh, you know, how much, what were sales yesterday, right? Or, or, or those kind of metrics, you, you get, you know, you get focused in on the, what's inside the bottle all the time that you can't read the label. Okay. And what we need to do is the customer has an outside view of your business. So you need to give them and you need to look at it from their perspective. Yeah. Love it. I think it's uh, uh, it, it's this, uh, and that takes, let's say, a bit of humbleness, because as the company goes bigger, and I'm I'm meeting with CEOs, and I'm I, I, I'm having these conversations, like they don't know the reality of their own businesses, and I think customer lifetime value is the metric of the CEO. It can't be the metric of marketing because it's not only about attracting people. It's also about retaining, which means it's not only the metric of merchandising because you need good products to make people stick stick around. And it's not also the metric of customer experience and fulfillment because if you deliver shit in real time, nobody's going to buy it again, right? So the CLV is a metric of the CEO. How, how can you uh, change the mentality of a CEO if he's not getting feedback from other people than the ones which with whom he's doing the one-on-ones. Because at the end of the day, if the CEO doesn't get the data from real customers, which are, I don't know, pissed off or they are ecstatic or whatever, he's not going to change the quality of his decision-making and he's going, going to have only these chats with the CFO, like things are going well, let's invest there, let's whatever, that's it. Right. Or let's cut here. Or let's cut there. You know, I think I think a great example of that is, you know, I don't know if you heard in um, in Romania about the big Southwest mess during the holiday season here where they had to cancel thousands of flights because yeah. their internal system for um, their employees to call in and let people know where they were just wasn't working. And so they didn't know where anybody was. They had to cancel everything. They This has been an issue for them for years and years and years and years. And the problem is, you know, here the CEO was, you know, he, he was a bean counter, right? All he was interested in was was maximizing profits, even though, you know, the 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 
the frontline people of Southwest are really known for really being, you know, kind people and good people. And, and they really try to keep, treat customers well. Unlike like something like Ryanair, which could be a whole different story, right? Or this, yeah. this, the crazy stories. But they, they really try to do a, a great job at it. But the CEO ignored this internal friction, okay, which he heard, should have heard from frontline people. And it cost them, I think the number was, I think it was $860 million. Okay, something like, uh, something like that. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a tremendous amount of money. And it'll probably erode their brand slowly and slowly over the years. He had a choice many years ago to decide whether he was going to look differently or not. And the reality is that, you know, while he just looked at profit, 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 and, you know, the, the amount of flights are going, he didn't, he didn't care about his employees. And when you don't care about your employees, they're going to have a hard time making sure that they can take care of your customers. And so if you don't take care of the employees first, your culture is starting to get broken. When that gets broken, those cracks are in your foundation. That's going to affect your customers. When you affect your customers, you're going to affect your bottom line. So first, you know, look internally. Look, look at your turnover rates. Look at the way your, your, you know, your people talk about each other and about the business, right? If you're not paying attention to that, you're missing. Like you're, you're. I mean, you're really living like in a tower where nobody understands what you're doing, and it's and it's sad. And there are CEOs who are not going to change, right? Um, you know, they think business is the way it used to be. But um, as I've been trying to tell people for the last 25 plus years, it's evolving faster than they can. And, you know, we just look at, at everything, right? From from politics to purchase cycles to marketing. Um, the younger generation, right? The, this alpha generation is, is going to change the older generation's habit or they're going to become like dinosaurs and go extinct. Excellent. So, Brian, I have a question, and I'm asking this all our uh, all our guests. If you if you would be playing this uh, small game with me, like uh -oh. let's let's build a small Hold list. On. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, you, if we if we would be building a list of advices to to mid sized to large companies so that they can improve their customer lifetime value, like a like, like a small bullet list of I don't know ten items you want, you go first. First one, have everybody in the company from the CEO to the stockroom interact with customers at least every couple of weeks. They should spend two days every few weeks or, or, or every couple of months at least, depending on how big your company is, right? On the phones, in the store, meeting customers, really interacting with them. Super. Lo love it. And I... Uh... Uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. So for for some for some years, I've been disconnected from my customers, and in the last two years, basically, I've changed the destiny of my organization by actually making 250 calls and finding, hey, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? It's a fantastic, uh, fantastic idea. I can go second. My uh, my proposal uh, would be uh, about measuring the level of happiness. You name it. You can use whatever KPI you want, but you make sure that the top level, the people in the boardroom are measuring customer happiness because that means putting a seat at the table, at the decision-making table and looking at the contract. How, how is the customer happiness? 
NPS, CSAT, I don't care how do you name it. Like, how is this going? Is this going up? Is this going down? And if it's going down, make sure that you know why. Because if you don't know why, it's like you don't care if the customers are unhappy. You just measure it and you're, you're going to be like a doctor, which is aware that your patient is suffering. You know that he has such and such blood pressure, but you don't do anything about it. Okay, I'm going to add to that one. We're going to put people over profits. When your only focus is on maximizing profits in the long term, when you're having unhappy people, like we talked about, right, internally, externally, your customers, your brand is going to erode. And we've seen that. We've seen great brands. I mean, you know, you, you think about, um, hold on, I'll, I'll make you laugh. You see, you see that sticker on the book? It was from <laughs> Yahoo. They were giving us free advertising. And you think about what, what Yahoo did and how they and how they failed, right? We look at what what and we should all be looking at what Facebook is going through right now. You know, it's a it's a brand that is declining, right? We can see it in front of our eyes. So pay attention to the people. I knew Facebook was gonna be in trouble when some of us early people got on there, right? Not, not the students, and all of a sudden we were hitting that five thousand person limit. And they were like, nope, you can't have more than 5,000 friends. If I travel the world and I meet so many amazing people like yourself and others, I'm going to hit 5,000, okay? Yeah. Um, and when they capped that, it wasn't about you and I. It was about their requirements. They didn't care about how we connected, really. And yeah. then, of course, it said, oh, no, no, go do pages. Okay. And then they put pages, and then they restricted how many people actually got to see it. Again, to favor them so they can get ad dollars, right? Not help people connect. And their mission was to connect your social network. Oops, they broke. Yeah, when it's a disconnection between the company journey and the customer journey, the companies will eventually uh, decline or collapse. Uh, and there are a lot of companies that went through that. I mean- uh, Sears? Was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great bands. Whatever. Kodak. Yeah. Kodak, exactly. They were ruining the world, you know. I was raising yeah. Kodak. We but all Kodak used Kodak was... film growing up. There wasn't there was no I mean, I mean, I I was a photographer back then. I had dark a dark room. So yeah, I'd experiment with different films, Agfa and stuff like that. But yeah. Kodak could have dominated every single phone, every single ca digital camera. Management decided, no, that's not the business they're in. But really, they're in the business of capturing memories. They forgot. They yeah. thought they were in the film business. That's right. Uh, I'll go next, number four. So number four is about uh, being aware about the customer journey. Like not, not doing the buyer persona shit in your boardroom with your marketers, uh, naming the best customers, Lucy, that has a uh, dog. No, it's not that. It's just focusing on, on your best customers that are manifesting, that are having the best experience with your products and your brands, and then investigating how what's their path, and then consciously crafting a customer journey and improving the customer experience. because, And that's because... If you want to increase the customer lifetime value in a world where everyone is selling the same thing, you have to differentiate somehow. And that somehow 
is customer experience. How you make them feel is more important than what you sell. If what you sell is the same thing as other 200 companies out there. I, I like that one. I'll, I'll, I'm going to bring you back way, way, way back to the first book we wrote. We we built the tool. The, one of the, it was the most popular tool we built when we had our agency. Okay, it was called my WeWe calculator. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you as a company, stop WeWeing all over yourself. Customers don't care about you. They listen to their favorite radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? Okay. <laughs> And when all your marketing is about, we are the best, we are the greatest, we've got the best prices, we've got this, we've got, they don't care. It's only about them. So stop wee-weeing all over yourself. I love it. I love it. I must, uh, I must steal this WIIFM. <laughs> love it. Well, at one point, I had the most popular wee-wee on the web. <laughs> Excellent. So going uh, going further, I think it's uh, it's about making uh, someone uh, responsible of the, the the let's say advocating for your customers because if uh, it's everyone's job is nobody's job. So having I don't know how you, how you call that guy customer experience officer, chief happiness officer, whatever that guy must be on the payroll and his job should be to make you responsible about all the shit that you're delivering to your customers. And that means he's, let's say, caring more about the customers than he's caring about your uh, your company. Absolutely. But, and at the same time, we have to enable our frontline staff and all of our employees um, to be able to make decisions on behalf of the customer and not be restricted by strict rules and regulations that Oh, no, no, I can't do that until you speak to the supervisor. I mean, we I had a, a, a crazy situation just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I have a, um, a ceiling fan here in my in my office, right? And, you know, it's I have very tall ceilings. So the good thing is that if I have the fan going, no, nobody can hear it on the microphone, which is great. Yeah. Here is my problem. The only way to control it is through this remote control. And the battery died. <laughs> okay i could turn on and off the light because it's a light switch so i can i and it was set to on so i can turn it on but i didn't have the fan on and it was crazy hot here still in texas right i mean look this week we had still had 83 degrees so what uh 37 38 right it was it was toasty and so on amazon they offer you to buy um you can get a, a product delivered today if you if you spent i think it was over 35 dollars it was the offer so the batteries were like 482 and I ordered a bunch of other things. Great. That afternoon, everything showed up. Except the batteries. Except the batteries. <laughs> so I wait a day. Okay, nothing. I wait the next day. It's still, it finally offers me that, hey, you can cancel the order and you'll get the refund. I do that. And I'm like, okay, I still need the battery. So I want to have the battery delivered. This is now a Wednesday. The only way I can get it delivered for the $4.82 is to wait for it to be delivered on Saturday. I'm like, I can't wait. I actually really need this at this point. So I call up customer service. Okay. And this is one of the shocking times that Amazon let me down. And I tell the, the woman, here's, here's the situation. I ordered it. I already qualified for the delivery that day. You failed to deliver it. I need my batteries. How can I order it? 
and have it delivered today. Now, the website gave you an option. If you wanted to pay $3, they deliver it. I wasn't willing to pay the extra $3. I knew what the solution was. I was not going to give it to her. She couldn't come up with a solution. She finally puts me on with a supervisor. Okay. And the supervisor goes, oh, yeah, hold on. Let me, let me give you a, a credit for, for $3 to, to cover that. And I got my batteries that afternoon. But yeah. if they would have enabled the frontline person to use common sense for three dollars, are we going to have an upset customer? No. With we what made a mistake. With what kind of customer lifetime value, which is very important, right? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't even want to talk about the amount of money I have spent on Amazon over the last twenty years. Let's let's not go there. That's right. All right. So Brian, you're up next. You're at number seven. Oh, I'm at number seven. Oh, I thought I no, no, no. I did. I this, my last one was this one about giving employees the opportunity. This is this is your turn. That's that's right. All right. So my suggestion is to simply cluster your customers thanks to RFN. So if you're in the retail, recency, frequency, monetary value, not all the customers are created equal. If you want to increase the customer lifetime value, go out there. Segment your best customers so that you can understand what other product can you sell them because it's also uh, uh, the idea to be to have a diverse portfolio of products. And also you can over deliver to your best customers like Brian is for Amazon <laughs> when those things happen, right? Because if you are aware about the value of the customers, then you will treat them how they deserve. And I love that. And what we can do next is once once we've segmented those customers by RFM, we can now add some demographic data on top of them, then add some psychographic information about them and create the personas that we can now tell stories about what these customers actually look like so that all of our employees can have the empathy for what this customer is actually going through in their buying journey and be able to even support them even in greater ways. Love it. So it's like blending first-party data with zero-party data and knowing exactly why the customers are becoming so valuable to your uh, to your business. I uh, I love it. So I think we're at the uh, at the last one, which is uh, which is number ten. My tenth, uh, the the idea number ten is to hold a list of the top three issues that are freaking appearing over and over and over again and you you know because as you know and as you inform everyone in the company about it so if you have like a report this is how satisfied are our, are our customers that's the nps and whatever and it, everyone knows that it, these are the top three issues and who is responsible to fix them then things are going to be changing in your organization because many companies are uh, let's say stubborn to do all their projects over and over again, but they disregard the fact that, hey, there are like thousands of customers that in the last month told us that we have this freaking issue with the, I don't know, package integrity or whatever that thing can be. Well, I'm going to take it one step further for you. Once you've identified what those issues are and you've identified what person is responsible for it, now make sure you already have a detailed action plan from senior management and frontline employees on what actions should be taken. So let's say, oh, uh, you know, um, our lead flow today is down 
Well, great. Who needs to be talked to about why that might be happening and what can we possibly do and who do we need to engage? So now maybe I, I bring my, I know that my creative people need to be brought in. I need to look, well, you know, is my analytics person making sure everything's working properly? But you have a clear action plan whenever that light goes off that, hey, this metric is off. Now we know who to call and what kind of things we need to do. We're not trying to figure it out last moment. I love it. It's, it's That's about how you keep agile. Yeah, yeah, I love it because it's uh, it, it's about the action, how you are changing your model, how you are doing things differently. And uh, if you if you don't change the way you do things, then you will end up having the same freaking results. So, Brian, I have a confession to make to you, and wow. basically, it's a, it's an uh, it's a public uh, public way of uh, stating how much I appreciate your presence in my life and your the work that you've been doing for years. So. Back in 2011, when I was uh, struggling to, to make my own e-commerce work, I, I was looking and I was searching for solutions. You are one of the solutions. After that, I've started this uh, optimization company, building a product, doing CRO and whatever. And you show up again in my life. And I, I have to confess and I have to say thanks to, to say how grateful I am. You show up and you give a, a talk. And at that talk, You've stated this thing, 80% of the companies think that they are customer-centric. However, only, I don't know, it was 10 or 8%, Eight, I don't 8%. know. 8%, yep. 8% of the customers uh, recognize that the companies that they are buying from are customer-centric. And uh, I thought, this is a problem to tackle. So you've, th that, that was a sparkle in my, in my head. And after that, Thank God I've been so inspired to talk with the customers, to understand how important it is to optimize customer lifetime value. And then here we are. And uh, that's my public uh, way of saying thanks for all your work and my, your influence in, in our, in our uh, company. I, I appreciate it because, you know, people come in our lives and, and um, I posted this on Instagram today about, you know, opportunity uh, shows up, but sometimes you, you, you know, you don't pay attention to it because it's dressed up in overalls and it looks like hard work, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you took on the hard work of trying to solve this problem, right? I, I, I was there and I'm, I, I, I love being that mentor, that, that, that spark for people to help them, to help them see more of what they can do themselves. But like a great entrepreneur, right? You said, okay, what do I do to take action to solve this problem? And that is where the magic happens in entrepreneurship. And that's what, that's the part that I tried making sure, you know, after doing this for 25 years, my, my goal at this point in my life is how do I influence, you know, the people like you, but not, but my kids, right? My daughter is about to graduate college and she's off to her first job, you know, uh, in, in June. My middle one is going to college next year. He'll continue his baseball career. Um, as well as academic career at, at, at school in Northeast. And my youngest one is going to high school. <clears throat> and like I mentioned earlier, they were so excited because they saw me on the Grammarly blog. Like they <laughs> never saw the early things that we did to build our business, to build our company, to take it from a consultancy to a SaaS, to take it public. Like, they never saw any of that. They never saw the early work we did with, with entrepreneurs. And I wanted to take all these lessons from entrepreneurs like yourself and from, from so many others who I've seen take these great fundamentals of, wow, that's a 72% problem. That's a big problem. 80% and eight. 
Like, how do, we, how do we go about solving it? And it's not that you need the perfect answer today. This is where every entrepreneur gets stuck. They look for that perfect thing. Oh, we're going to solve the whole thing. No. Progress is better than perfection. You're taking steps to move people forward. And every entrepreneur, every marketer who's afraid to get on camera, who's afraid to get on stage, who's afraid to, to, to you know, try that new campaign, they're afraid of taking action because they're afraid to push the button and say, ah, maybe it's not perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. Take a step forward, then optimize. Take a step forward, then optimize. That's it. Love it. Brian, I have a question uh, regarding this, uh, I don't know, struggles that, that we've had. Like we've started three years ago with advocating towards CVO, optimizing the whole customer lifetime value, beginning with this North Star metric, and then coming up with the strategies. We have the, let's say, old school uh, mentality around, you know what, we need to focus on the small tactics and do, those will level up eventually. So we have the CRO perspective where it's about conversion rate optimization. It's not about customer value optimization, but yep. uh, we, we also have this new breadth of uh, 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 companies which are adopting this and they, they are realizing that you know what maybe conversion rate is not the most important thing maybe it's the customer experience maybe bringing in more customers that are unhappy will damage our brand in the in the future so i want to uh, have your opinion towards having this optimization process which starts with the customers first which analyzes what's wrong and then optimizing the and prioritizing things that are more impactful on the uh, grand scheme of things. So we, I'll have a confession to make too now. Yep. The only reason we coined the term conversion rate optimization in the early days of our career, remember, we, you know, we started, you know, mid nineties, you know, went to the early two thousands, all that Yeah. was because nobody was looking for the help that we were providing. Nobody, nobody. Okay. And, you know, we were out there and trying to explain things and all that. And we had put some early content out there. We figured copywriting, maybe that would be a good start, right? The analytics, there was still almost nobody looking for what we were doing. So we invented the term conversion rate optimization for only one reason. The only term, because we started off with digital salespeople and, you know, people hate sales. So they didn't want to think that way. We didn't know. But the only term that had search volume was the word conversion rate that xe.com dominated, okay? Because people were thinking about it yeah. from yeah. currency conversion, yeah. but at least it had volume. We're like, well, if we're talking to nobody anyway, at least we could talk to people who might be interested at, in this term and maybe they'll think about. So we started targeting conversion rate, right? And, and conversion rate uh, marketing, yeah. conversion rate optimization. But if you recognize by the time we wrote call to action, Okay, and that was 2005. We were already saying, here, take our manual for conversion rate optimization because it's a dead end. Okay, and we started our work on persuasion architecture, right, and, and personas and really focusing on, on what that customer is and the customer experience and the lifetime value and what the customer journey looks like, right? Because we realized that you're only fixing in conversion rate optimization. I'll, I'll go look at the local maxima, right? What's there, you're going to try to improve. The, so that's the same as I take a pig, no matter how pretty of a pig, and I put lipstick on it, 
it's still a pig. Okay, it didn't start with, oh, I can use Dolly today, right? My AI to create the most beautiful version of, of, of a picture, right? Male, female, whatever it is. Now I've got perfection. Okay, great. Now, how do we plan to actually getting there? And that's, that's where we started focusing on, right? What does that journey look like at the end? What does it look like when every customer is giving you a five-star review? When every customer is, is telling you, hey, you're doing an amazing job. OmniConvert is the best software. It does everything I needed in my, in my life. I mean, I'm thinking of naming my child after it. <laughs> okay? But that's the point, right? If we start focusing in on the end of success of what it looks like for the customer, which is them telling other customers how much they love the experience with you, everything else starts falling into place. Fantastic. Excellent. So, Brian, tell us a bit about your, uh, let's say, some aha moments that you've had in the work with customers that have been, I don't know, over the moon by, by your services because you are still... Uh, helping large brands, of course, it's not like it was in the beginning of uh, 2000, right? When you were actually going out there for customers. Now is the is the opposite. There's been a lot. I think I think there, there's a few of them that really stand out, um, and, and and I won't I, I can't name names on all of them, but yeah. I re I remember one of them, very early customer. He asked us to do a conversion analysis on on their website. He he was in charge of the the front end. He, uh, business to consumer side of the business. And he was responsible for sales and the conversion. He was about to transition to a new role. And he wanted to leave his staff um, a manual of like what they can keep working on over the next like six months or so. So we produced a report and it's a big customer. It's one of our first like big, big names early on. And we produce something that's like this. And he comes to us and says, okay, what do we do now? and uh we're like well you, you get all this done he's like no can't, can't get everything done like I, I, what do we do now and he was one of the first people who taught us in terms of big companies how they need to prioritize things and that's where we came up with our you know impact resources and time model to yeah. figure out what things to test and so they took one simple test which was they changed the language in their shopping cart around their options, okay? Um, and that alone, they, I mean, it went for uh, over a decade, we know. Like people like continue to test it. People, uh, they finally moved it to the B2B side and it counted for tens of millions of dollars. And it was the only thing from the report they ever executed on. <laughs> Yeah. Another customer, similar thing. He was the CEO of the company. We went ahead and uh, Jeffrey's talking to him. It's midnight. They start engaging. They sign a contract. I wake up. I'm an early morning person, 5 a.m. I see what I have to do. <clears throat> I look into their analytics. I look at one of their pages. They they had, at the, this is going way back too. They had multiple testing tools that they were using. They had a statistician. They had like a whole team of people focused in on testing. They were testing this one page. They couldn't move the needle. I go ahead, and this is overstock.com. And I tell them to change one graphic. That one graphic accounted to a 5% lift to the top line because it was the second most traffic page on the website. 
right? Their movies and DVD pages. I talk about this in Call to Action. And, and, it, and it counted for over $25 million for one graphic. Again, it was the only thing they ever did that we gave that we gave him a whole list for because he said, I can't change my culture. I can get some, like I can get one thing done, small thing. He got this done literally overnight. But the lesson was they got so inside their bottle looking every day at the same problem, coming back to what we talked about earlier, that they never told the story of what it was that the customer was experiencing when they got to that page. And when I told myself that little narrative, that little story of here I am, this kind of customer, and I look at the page, and I'm this type of customer, I look at the page. And I looked at that graphic, and I'm like, oh, that's the only thing that needs to change. $25 million later. We've had countless of these. We've had companies that we've walked into that had 75 feet of research along their wall who knew nothing about how their customers buy, who knew that, who didn't even know that their biggest piece of marketing, okay, was actually turning off the majority of their customers. And then yesterday, by the way, this same company, we haven't, I haven't spoken with them in a while. The person there is no longer there that we work with. I just found out they're opening up another branch of their business to focus in on that customer set here in Texas. We'll see how that works. Yeah. So, Brian, tell us a bit more about uh, the rise and beans millionaire, the tale of an improbable entrepreneur. How how that book emerged? Why have you read? What made you write this book? And who's the who is this book for? So, you know, as I'm sure you noticed, the last couple of years, you know, Jeffrey and I have not been very public. You know, we've been working on a small startup to help business owners in the home services space. We we, we launched something called DataTurk.ai. It's a very niche audience, but it's it's a it's a it's an it's a group that we've been spending a lot of time with. So we knew we could build a product there. But over the last few years, especially you know through COVID and stuff like that, you know I, I you know my son with baseball and and I, spending training him and working and, and helping mentoring other young entrepreneurs in their journey, I realized that there was not a book that that talked about those first principles. I would ask, and I, I mean I can ask you right now too. Like if you had to think about one book that you would recommend to you know your kid or a young entrepreneur from 13 to 83 who needs to understand the mindset and the beginning skill set of all the things you need to know to be an entrepreneur, could you name a book? For the for the inception, I don't know. Maybe Michael Gerber's The Entrepreneur. Name it. That's the most popular answer. And if you think about his story. Right. That's you first start with a bakery and a few employees and he's telling you, hey, don't work in your business, work on your business. Your business and that's yeah. great advice. That's not that first trigger, that first step to become an entrepreneur. So along the way in the book, I have you meet characters, some of them real. People like Peter Shankman and Amanda Russell and Derek Halpern and um, uh, Joe Ferraro. There's a bunch of them. And others that I've taken, and I've taken their stories, and I've blended them together with others. So they're real stories, but you don't know who the person is. I don't necessarily want to reveal it, right? Yeah. Or I took two stories, and I put it into one character, okay? And I wanted the current business owner or, or one who just frustrated with where they are in life, and they want more. They've just had enough of where they're at. Yeah. To realize that there's a journey here. Right. 
there are people that you need to meet, like like we met, right? That are going to help you get to that next level. And you become the people who you hang around, the people you ask questions from. Um, and you start learning different aspects of what it takes to become successful. And I wanted to have a book, first of all, that you can read in about an hour. The audio book is two hours long. So it takes nothing to get through. Okay, real quick read. Yeah. You know, super simple chapters, okay, that anybody can read. And you can read it once and you can get the story. But you can dive into every chapter and there is story and layers of information and and things that you can take away that will make you a bu better business owner, CEO, entrepreneur every single day. Love it. Love it. I can't wait to read it. I was uh, pre pre uh, purchasing it already. So, uh, Brian, what's the question that I haven't been so inspired enough to ask you today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's the last, by the way. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, one of the things I don't think enough people ask questions about is what were some of the, the struggles? What were some of the, um, uh, the failures that, that people have along their journey? And I think there's a lot to learn from those failures, right? Because obviously we don't want to make the same mistake. Um, When and I, and I think our biggest one, and it's a weird one, but I, I think it, it, I think it, it's very relevant to where we are in today's economy and what people are doing. Yeah. So as you know, you know, we started off with some very detailed, you know, conversion-related books, right? We 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 started with the copywriting and the e-metrics, you know. Then we went to uh, call to action. And then we went ahead and we wrote this bigger marketing piece talking about how the trend of the consumer is changing. It got written up in the Wall Street Journal about finicky customers and, and waiting for your cat to bark. And then the world was changing. The environment was changing. And um, we were approached by Google asking us if we would write a book about Google Website Optimizer and how to use it. And we had positioned ourselves as looking at the bigger problem, not just the small problem that we talked about earlier. Yeah. But, but we decided that, okay, for our agency sake, not for our sake, but for our agency sake, it made sense to own that position of having written always be testing, right? And, and, and launching it with Google Website Optimizer. And a lot of businesses today are looking at the same thing, right? The economy is getting more difficult. Things are a little bit more challenging. It's harder to get people's attention. Should we contract and focus smaller than what our big vision was? Yep. And I'll tell you that that hurt us, right? It hurt. People didn't know who we were anymore. Where were these, where were these big, innovative, big thinkers? Or were they these little tinkerers talking about the 30 different things that you can test on a website? And when you lose your identity because you've lost your vision and you got taken off course, your business is going to suffer. So stay on track on what you want to do and keep aiming higher. Don't like it's so comfortable in a recession to be like, OK, we're going to shrink. No, I mean, you can shrink your 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 impact, your, you know, your resources, but your vision, you can't shrink that. Love it having a bold vision and uh, uh, 
I've I've been in in some struggles myself to to, to share my transition from the from solving that CRO problem because in our life when uh, Google Website Optimizer has been uh, revamped, they've start they suddenly had uh, an offering which was uh, significant to 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 ours and we had to change. Uh, yep. uh, dramatically you know to change our business model and that that struggle led us to to think of ways to deliver undeniable value to the market and and it was a hard a hard period but what i've uh, i've got last for one and a half years by trying to stay alive you know paying the rent paying the salaries and and it was such a hard such a hard period to lose my bold vision towards providing a tool that it's pro, that is giving undeniable value to the market and what i realized when i woke up after i don't know a, 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 a long meditation it took me 10 days of meditation silent meditation to realize that you know what i'm going to die anyway and if i'm dying let's do something bold with this life let's let's take on another journey let's do something because you can't go further than your biggest vision and if your biggest vision is to pay the rent you're gonna freaking maybe pay the rent. I post. I posted that the other day on social media. It's like, you know, how big is your dream? And uh, look, we can we can we can wrap it up on this thought. Yeah. There's a very early clip of Jeff Bezos talking about his business. And if you remember, Amazon first started. He wanted to be, you know, the the biggest bookstore, right? He want, he knew he could offer millions of titles. But very, very early on in their journey, and they were still tiny at this point. They were starting to get a little success, but they, they were nowhere yeah. near like what we think of them today. And here they are competing with Walmart, who <laughs> has more resources than anybody in the world. They have more data, they, everything. And Jeff Bezos' dream and his vision was for Amazon to be Earth's, not the United States, Earth's most customer-centric company that's bold that's big and he did everything in his power to get there he's retired new ceo is coming aboard they're talking about shrinking some things now they've laid off a whole bunch of people they're talking about how they're going to have to kind of adjust their thinking they're not going to be able to innovate as much we'll see if that is either their blessing or their curse because they're still not chasing that bold vision. Yeah, and that that's indeed a, a good thought to, to to wrap it up. So, Brian, uh, where can people reach? Uh, reach? Uh, where can people follow you? Where are you uh, most present these days? Sure. Uh, you know, obviously, they can find me at brianeisenberg.com or biolegends.com, which is our company. Um, but I'm on all, all the social media. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm you know on Instagram. And yes, I've even started a little bit on TikTok, just putting up some little clips of old speeches and other conversations I've had. Again, just trying to provide value to people. Perfection. And you've definitely provided value uh, today. Thanks a lot, Brian, for being with us. Uh, it was an, uh, an honor to have you as a guest in our uh, podcast and into the CVO life. Thanks again for what you're doing to the entire industry. And that was it. That's a wrap, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you.